We have a new microphone that we're trying out. And uh, so last week in this, uh, bear patiently with us as we adjust because the new microphone that we have that I'm using actually allows me not to speak so loudly. And I like that. Sometimes if you don't have the right microphone, you feel like you have to speak loudly all the time so people in the back can hear you. But the least loudly I can speak, the better. I get a little excited sometimes, that's different. But anyways, 2 Corinthians chapter 13. Uh, before we get started, college and career, all those working in music or children at the National Pastors Fellowship in Florida. We want you to stay behind for a little bit. We're just going to convene right up here in the right-hand side. I'll meet with you uh, with a couple other arch folks right after the morning service. I'll ask Pastor Mike and Steve and Kent and our elders to go out and greet folks and guests this morning, but I'll be up here with you folks, okay? Just for about five minutes or so. All right, uh, let's have a word of prayer together. Father in heaven, we need and must have um, the working of your spirit to help us understand the conclusion of this letter to the Corinthians. Help us, Lord, to understand the plain reading of the text, to understand the plain application of it as it was understood and applied by those who originally received it millennia ago. Thank you for what you'll do to help us along these lines in Christ's name. Amen. For those of you who are guests, we try to go through one book a year in the morning service. Uh, next year we'll be venturing into the book of Job beginning in February and look forward to going through that book of poetry uh, with you in 2022. For now, we finish up 2 Corinthians, and we've learned a lot of wonderful things from 2 Corinthians as Paul concludes uh, this book, chapters 11, 12, and 13, which is the final section of this second letter. He concludes really with defending the value of spiritual authority in the church, the authority that preaches the gospel message. The gospel message by its very nature that is full of authority and divine integrity. The messengers must be filled with the spirit of God and spiritual integrity as well. Unbelief always tries to undermine genuine spiritual authority and integrity. Could you all write that down? Unbelief always attempts to undermine spiritual authority that has integrity now there's a lot of authority that calls themselves spiritual that don't have integrity they have undermined themselves are you with me they have undermined themselves because they don't live spirit-filled lives with bible character and integrity but spirit-filled spiritual authority is constantly under attack and Paul's was by unbelief that sought to undermine his spiritual authority and his influence his gospel influence in the church of Corinth and that unbelief was somewhat inside the church and definitely outside the church but Paul takes this last third of the second letter 
And he just addresses that uh, with the Corinthian people to make sure that if they're going to continue, as they continue by God's grace being a church, that they always remember what spiritual authority is and what it does. So it's very, very necessary since it takes authority to lead and to oversee. Uh, this is pretty critical information. We began to see some of the virtues of spiritual, genuine authority last week. I'd like to continue on uh, with those virtues. In chapter 13, I'd kind of like to highlight those for you if you like to take notes. As we begin, we're going to divide up these uh, final few verses here um, this way. Spiritual authority always longs for relationship restoration. If relationships have been divided, spiritual genuine authority always wants relationships inside the local church scripturally mended. Any pastor, any spiritual leader that throws relationships to the curb or leaves broken relationships broken, whether it's their relationship with their people or the people's relationship with each other, these are not people with spiritual integrity. That's verses 1 and 2. Verses 3 and 4. Spiritual leadership, if it's genuine, will always lead the flock in complete gospel protection. So relationship restoration, verses 1 and 2, and gospel protection in verses 3 and 4. Verses 5 through 9. Spiritual, genuine leadership always desires personal and corporate sanctification. Paul's going to use the word twice in this final chapter. Completion. So right down there. Personal and corporate spiritual sanctification or completion. Anyone in their right mind that leads people in a spiritual way always desires those people to continue to grow in Christ's likeness. And then the remainder of the chapter is really about the ultimate continuation of the church. The continuation of the church. Any pastor, any spiritual leader worth their weight always has a burden for the local church and its gospel influence to be perpetuated long after they're off the scene. We could probably just end the sermon with prayer right now, leave you with those four points, with those verses attached to those points, and you could, by prayer, just go and study them on your own the rest of the week. And we could allow that just to sink into your soul so that you would know by the Spirit's help the value of what Paul is saying here to the Corinthians. And we would do that if we weren't charged in 2 Timothy 4 to preach the word when we gather together as God's people on the Lord's day. So I'm going to preach through these verses. Tonight, after we break up from the Lord's Supper, you're going to be discussing these verses together. So you'll have it preached this morning. You'll have it discussed 
this evening, and then you can take the outline that's provided for you on our website by way of review tomorrow or Tuesday, and you can rehash these words on your own, because how Paul concludes this letter is of immense importance to the flock, to you and then to us. C.S. Lewis said this, of all tyrannies, a tyranny sincerely exercised for the good of its victims may be the most oppressive. Those who torment us for our own good will torment us without end. For they do so with the approval of their own conscience. I'm going to read that again. Of all the tyrannies, a tyranny sincerely exercised for the good of its victims may be the most oppressive. Those who torment us for our own good will torment us without end, for they do so with the approval of their own conscience. This is what the unbelief both inside and outside the church of Corinth was doing. They were in a tyrannical way seeking what they defined to be the good of the Corinthian people. And in so doing, they demanded their attention. And they even demanded that the Corinthian people pay for their message. Tyranny that says... They're acting tyrannically for your own good will always oppress you without end. That's not what true, genuine spiritual leadership does. So what does this leadership do? We've outlined it broadly. Now let's speak specifically. We've already read this text, verses 1 and 2. There's some numbers in verses 1 and 2. The numbers 2 and the numbers 3. The number 2 and the number 3. Paul says he's about to come for a third time. And he says before he comes, he wants them to know that he is ready to defend who he is and the message that he's preached and the life that he's lived as a gospel preacher. And he's ready to defend that by the use of two or three witnesses. You see, Paul knew that if the gospel message was going to continue to thrive within the Corinthian church and without the Corinthian church, that there needed to be relationship restoration. There needed to be practical unity among the people of God in the local church. Paul was passionate about the unity of people involved in gospel work. Cross-reference here in the margin of your Bible, Philippians chapter 4. Paul called out a pastor named Clement to minister to two people at the church of Philippi. And their names were Yodia and Syntyche. These were two ladies in the church of Philippi that enjoyed very deep, and wide gospel ministry with one another for some time. 
there was something of philosophical or practical nature that divided their relationship inside that church for the gospel's sake. We don't know how large the church of Philippi was. We know that it had a tremendous testimony for the gospel's sake. Philippians chapter 1 and verse 5, Paul calls them partners in the gospel. We know that they endured much affliction from Acts 16. He says later on in chapter 1 that the falling out, uh, their, their affliction fell out rather to the furtherance of the gospel. This was an influential church, and there were two ladies in this church that joined arms for years in doing disciple-making gospel work in Philippi. And they had a disagreement. Just two people. Let's say the church of Philippi had 75 people in it. We don't know. We know it had less than 250 to 300 people, and we know it had more than 25. Colossae, from all we know, all I know about church history, and you send me your church history research, was probably the smallest church at 25 people. The church of Ephesus was probably the largest first century New Testament church, located in multiple sites, probably over 250 to 300 people. We're not, I'm not familiar with the size of Philippi, but nonetheless, let's say she's 75 people. Why? Listen, folks, why? point out two ladies out of 75. Why have a pastor go and address those two ladies who once walked together in fellowship who now are not? Why have coffee with those two ladies and say, ladies, look, let's talk about what's brought the division so there can be restoration of your relationship, your friendship, because there's something a whole lot more important and your friendship and it's gospel progress there's 73 other people in this church that know that you used to minister together that know now that you're not and it's obvious and it's affecting their confidence and walk in the gospel let's fix this and then let's get back to rejoicing in the Lord Always, and again I say rejoice. It's that important. And folks, you know what? It really doesn't matter the size of the church. The Bible doesn't talk about the size of the church post-Acts. We have to study history for that. We'll finish with a quote by D. Martin Lloyd-Jones that addresses that particularly this morning. But Paul was very, very passionate about relationship restoration for the gospel's sake. I think you could cross-reference here the whole book of Philemon. The smallest letter in the New Testament was about Onesimus, who had offended Philemon, being restored to a relationship with Philemon so there could be gospel progress in the church that existed in Philemon's home. Folks, this is really what the book of Ephesians is about. There's division in the church, Ephesians chapter 2. They've all been saved by one glorious gospel, chapter 1. There's religious, philosophical, racial division in chapter 2. 
Paul gives his testimony, tells them of what he used to be and what he now is in Christ, calls them all back to being one in Christ and focusing on their unique goal in pursuing Christ's likeness, and spends chapters 4, 5, and 6 teaching how the Spirit of God has produced a unity among those people, and it's their job to maintenance that unity. And then he goes into a very layered way in the remaining part of chapter 4, 5, and 6 about how they maintenance that unity per their relationships in Jesus Christ. In the way they work in their secular jobs, in the way they function domestically in their homes and in their marriages how they function in their community, with relationships in their community. You cannot take but just a simple bird's eye view of understanding of New Testament epistolary epistolary literature that Paul wrote and not see that he was passionate about relationships being maintenanced. If you consider the nature of the immediate contexts, of not only those books, but also the book of Colossians and the book of Galatians. You can see, see, as we've said in weeks previous, that Satan's always seeking to peel the people of God apart from one another. And Paul's saying, no, the Spirit of God has produced the unity and we need to maintenance what he's produced. And it's worth it for the gospel's sake. God's sovereignty oversees all these things. I understand that. But we have a role. And Paul is saying here, this is the third time I'm coming to you. Every fact is to be confirmed by the testimony of two or three witnesses. What's he doing here? He came to him for the first time in Acts 18. He came to him to the second time after he wrote 1 Corinthians. He's about to come to them a third time. And he's saying, in order to fully regain your confidence in who I am in Christ and the message I've delivered to you in Christ and the life I've lived in Christ before you, if we're going to be fully restored in our relationship with one another again, it's got to be verified by facts. The whatsoever things are true about our relationship with each other. Verifying facts by way of two or three witnesses is a transdispensational method of communication that we see in the Bible. We see it clear back into Deuteronomy chapter 19 and verse 15. We see it again in an Old Testament context in Matthew chapter 18 and verse 15. We see it in New Testament contexts. Hebrews 10, verse 28, 1 John 5, 8, for pastors and their people in 1 Timothy 5, 19 and 20. Wherever there is, like Yodian Syntyche, a gospel relationship once enjoyed, now divided, there is a way for that relationship to be restored and perpetuated for Christ. For Christ. And it's a process. And it includes, as Paul says here, every fact being established in the presence 
of two or three people. Takes some time, takes some effort. Everyone calls that the hard conversation to have. And Paul is saying, yes, God's grace does compel us to do hard things. But there's something ultimately that will be enjoyed by all if each does the hard thing. And that is the salvation of more people coming to Christ through the combined interdependent corporate effort of restored relationship people inside the local church. It's very clear in this context that the Spirit of God, he concludes later with the perpetuity, the continuation of the church. He says that God and his presence will actually be with you if this is what we do. I read one author one time on biblical communication, and he said if Christian people would simply just practice practical biblical communication in this way, after their conclusion, the conclusion of their conversations would be this, that 99% of their disagreements ended up being misunderstandings. Satan loves to divide people over things that are not whatsoever things are true. If it is secondhand or thirdhand information, I will tell you it's rarely, if ever, true in the first place. If you are dividing your relationship with another believer over second or thirdhand information. It must be established, Paul says, with him, I'm coming for a third time. We're going to be face to face. And I want to make sure that we are tight. <laughs> that we are together. We've been through so much. We want to continue to go through so much for the gospel's sake. And it's going to be verified by God's grace in the presence of two or three witnesses. So yes, he does pump the brakes a bit here. He understands that it's going to take time, but he's willing to allow grace to compel him to carve out that time. And he's willing to do it. To the point of even highlighting the exactness of the reason why saints must be restored in their fellowship to God first and then one another for the gospel's sake. We would also say that the text before us teaches us that genuine spiritual authority is concerned that the content of the gospel be protected as well. We find this in verses 3 and 4 that were read earlier. Paul says the Corinthian people had been taught by unbelief inside and outside the church, verse 3 says, to seek for proof that Christ speaks in Paul. We've already highlighted the expectations of unbelief in weeks previous on Paul, the unrealistic, unbiblical expectations on Paul. High and lofty rhetoric, proof of income from speaking his craft or speaking eloquently his message among others, showing himself to be strong physically, intellectually, emotionally, and verbally, these expectations are those that unbelief had swayed the Corinthians to embrace. Unbelief had turned the necks of genuine belief to now have confidence in man's ability to persuade man over God's ability to change man's life 
through the gospel of Jesus Christ. Paul sincerely explains that the demonstration of the spirit and power of God in salvation to literally seek Christ in someone is to be an eyewitness of the change only Christ can bring to someone's way of life. He states that Christ, as we read, was crucified because of weakness. Remember he says earlier, I'm going to be identified with Christ and he's weak. Well then, yep, I'm weak. There's nothing in me that can change your life and the way you live. That's religious performance-based living. Right? That's that tyranny of one by seeking your good. That's the most oppressive kind. No, Paul's saying, if Christ was weak, then I'm weak, because only he and his grace can transition you from living in the flesh to living by the Spirit. Christ was crucified because of weakness, but yet he lives by what? By the power of God. For we also, he says, are weak in him. Yet we live with him because of the power of God directed toward you. What he's saying toward you in Christ. Paul is simply stating that the protection of the gospel is achieved by the way a Christian lives. And the way a Christian lives is a demonstration of the spirit and power of God. It is the demonstration of resurrection power. The body of Christ was dead and God spoke it alive by the spirit of God. Just like when God the spirit spoke to your heart and by his omnipotent word persuaded your being your soul, yourself, that you are a sinner and that you are in desperate need of the sufficiency of the person of Jesus Christ alone for your forgiveness, your salvation, your perseverance, and your hope of eternal life. God who raised Christ's body from the dead is the same God that saves in Christ and regenerates us by the Spirit of God from spiritual death to new life in Christ unto newness of life and living. Consider with me all of Paul's put-off, put-on passages that he pens in the New Testament. Colossians 3, Ephesians 4, among others. I think those are appropriate cross-references to write next to these verses, verses 3 through 5. It is by the power of God in Christ, by the indwelling Spirit who also renews us, regenerates us, and takes us from spiritual death unto life, that we are compelled to put off that which we used to do in sinful habit before we're saved, and we put on that which Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 2, which means to, teaches us how to walk and to please God. 
We've already seen the practical demonstration of the power of God in verses 1 and 2. People who are governed by the Spirit, they want that kind of communication. They want that kind of restoration for gospel propagation. They just want it. It's hard, but they want it. They have to have it. That's the demonstration in our own context. Paul had already addressed how the power of God had changed the Corinthian believers in 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 11. Would you go with me back to that text as you hold your finger here? Go back a few pages to the left. Many of you will recognize these verses, to be sure. 1 Corinthians chapter 6 and verse 9, he tells the Corinthian people in his first severe letter. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not deceive, neither fornicators, those who practice sexual intimacy outside the context of biblical marriage, make it a lifestyle, nor those who have idols, nor those who are unfaithful to their spouses, nor adulterers, nor effeminate. These are men who live and act like women in every way of their living, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor the covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of heaven. He says in verse 11, such what? Such were some of you. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the spirit of our God. What had happened here? The people had been swayed by their own unbelief and the unbelief inside and outside the church to go step back into the lifestyles that they lived before they knew Jesus. So is it possible for a believer to do these sins? The answer is yes. Absolutely yes. Paul's saying here, but there was a time in your life where you stopped living like that and made that a pattern of your life. And now you're making it a pattern again. What compelled you or who compelled you to stop living like that when you first heard the gospel? It was the Spirit of God explicating the power of the message of the gospel to your soul. And you had a life change. No one can explain that. No one can explain that. God did that. God did that. And he's saying to those who had slipped back into it as a way of life, hey, listen, you know that this is a matter of the integrity of your salvation. Do you really know Jesus or don't you? This is not a matter of perfectionism. This is a matter of progress. This is not a matter of once you're saved, you never sin again. That's not what Paul's saying. He's saying once you're saved, we have a general pattern of walking away from our old lifestyle while we're sometimes tempted and sometimes experienced, we confess, we repent, and we turn, and we grow again. In other words, we're not living a life dominated by sin on a perpetual basis. And we continue, we continue to protect the content and the nature, we can't protect the nature of the gospel, it is what it is. We protect the content of the gospel really 
by the way we live and the, by the way we live together as we gradually pursue Christ-likeness. I think one of the greatest failures of our time in the westernized world, especially in conservative, those who would call themselves conservative Christians, is the mishandling of saints who lived a particular way that 1 Corinthians 6 describes before they were saved, then they actually get saved and there is a change. And for whatever circumstances in their life are there, they start dabbling again in the lifestyle that they used to live before they were saved. And one of our greatest mistakes is how we treat and don't love those people. Back to fellowship with Christ. And one of the reasons that they're mistreated, I think is somewhat of a, a tyrannical way of treating people. Right? The way many have been treated in the past in a tyrannical way was, well, it, it came across that the people that were the leaders never really struggled with those things themselves. And it made the person in the failure to be the fool instead of the saint who was stuck. And that gave a vibe of somewhat of a perfectionism or performance-based Christianity. Like, if you fell into that sin, well, how could you? Like, get over it. Let's go. Confess, forsake, repent. Let's go. And then it's not discussed. The how, the why, the when. There's no help involved. That's not what Paul's saying here to the Corinthian people. He knows they've fallen back. He knows they've been restored. And he wants them to keep growing towards Christ-likeness for the glory of God, not simply his benefit. The way we live is the protection of gospel content the way we gradually pursue Christ-likeness, compelled by the grace of God as spirit-filled believers together, is the protection of the gospel. Unto what goal? Spiritual maturity. That's verses 5 through 9. Look with me at verse 9. For we rejoice when we ourselves are weak, but you are strong. In other words, we rejoice. We're at our happiest when we know that you're living by the power of the gospel and not by Paul, not by Pastor Tim, not by any other human. Our true guttural rejoicing, our genuine rejoicing is when you are strong in Christ. And then he says, this we also pray for that you might be made complete. Now, go back with me here to the beginning of verse 7. Now we pray to God that you do no wrong, not that we ourselves may appear approved. Again, it's not about me trying to prove I'm walking in Christ for you. My life has shown that. We want to verify that by two or three witnesses, but that you might do what is right. What is right for the Corinthian people in this context by Paul? living gospel integrity. That's what's right. It's not about approving Paul. It's about 
allowing the authentic influence of the gospel of Christ in them individually and then collectively to be worked out in their existence unto Christ's likeness. And all of this is underpinned by prayer. Let's not ever forget that, friends and family in Christ. The pursuit of Christ-likeness, the pursuit of what it means to be like God, practically, is underpinned exclusively by the grace of God in Christ and prayer. We must pray. D.A. Carson has written a book. I think it's just simply called Pauline Prayers. I would encourage you to get that book and devour it a couple times. It's an exposition of each one of Paul's prayers in the New Testament and the letters that he wrote. And in those, in those studies that D.A. Carson does, you'll see a very explicit direction of pursuit of holiness in the believer's life. And because it's in the context of prayer, you'll know that prayer is achieved personally and collectively through the discipline of prayer. Christ-likeness is achieved through the discipline of prayer. The word completion here in verse 9 just simply means to furnish or to cause to be fully qualified. It just means adequacy. Being able to really stand on your own, surrounded by other people who by the grace of Christ are furnished and have become adequate. This particular word is used in two other familiar texts in the New Testament, Ephesians 4.12, where pastor-teacher gift is given to the equipping of the saints for the work of the ministry. They've been made adequate by the pastor-teacher gift. They've been furnished well to do the work of the ministry. And we see it again in 2 Timothy 3.17, which is also familiar to many of you. From a child, Paul had heard, heard the Holy Scriptures that made him wise into salvation. You know, 2 Timothy 3.16, that the Word of God is necessary. It's been God-breathed, and it's useful to teach you, to rebuke us, to correct us. And to what? Verse 17. Furnish us unto every good work. Equip us. Make us adequate unto every good work. Just a couple cross-references there for you. This is the goal of prayer and living in the New Testament. Consistent prayer is the self-discipline of the Christian life for the spiritual benefit of themselves and other believers unto spiritual maturity. The older I get, the more deeply I value when people tell me they're praying for me. A number of you texted me this morning. A number of you text me every Sunday morning that you're praying for me. You tell me coming in the building, you're praying for me. That is profoundly important to me the older I get. Prayer is the primary personal worship discipline of the saint under the spiritual growth of any soul in the local church. The prayer is necessary because it leads to the discipline of holy living. Disciplined spiritual living without prayer is merely walking in a desert where no water is and it is exclusively performance-based living. Prayer is the water of the parched soul in the pursuit of holiness that longs to walk and to please God. 
Prayer is the breath necessary to spiritually live and grow in Christ-likeness. The prayers of the saints of God continually waft around the throne of God long after that saint goes home to be with the Lord. And those prayers will, for the life of the saint that they were offered for, be the energy of the spiritual growth of that saint while they continue to live on this earth. Parents, value prayer for your children, for salvation, and for sanctification. Grandparents, the same continually for your children and grandchildren. Saints of physical age here know the divine value of your intercession for your pastors and the sheep at Grace Church of Menor. Disciplers, know the value of intercession and prayer for the loved one in Christ with whom you study God's word often. Prayer is the support of the imperatives of these verses. Verse 5. Test yourselves and examine yourselves. If we don't recognize prayer twice within this immediate context, when you go to test and examine, you'll die on the vine. These disciplines must be prayed for. Both are imperatives to do the bidding of the commands of God without being underpinned with the support of prayer is exhausting and really spiritually impossible. The word test here is an interesting word in the New Testament. We are to obey this command of testing. And it's really learning the character or nature of something by submitting it to various extensive tests and testing. Somewhat of a scientific process, if you will. Somewhat of a refining process, if you will. Paul says to each Corinthian believer, they are to put themselves to the test by various tests, what were the tests they were enduring within the context? The onslaught from unbelief inside and outside the church. The lack of integrity, maybe in their own personal pursuit of holiness. They'd failed a couple tests there. We know that from 1 Corinthians. Their division of their relationship from Paul that's now trying to be restored and maintained. Go back, Corinthian people, Look at your tests of your own life in relationship to these three things and many more. Did you pass? Did you pass? If you haven't, that's okay. It's okay. God's grace forgives. But this is really the pursuit of maturity. This is really the pursuit of sanctification. And it's underpinned by prayer. And then he says examine in the same sentence. That's a more familiar word to us that comes from that root word, dokimazo. Test yourself to see if you be genuine. Prayer is offered under the obedience of the commands given here by Paul to Corinth and to us. Prayer combined with the obedience of these commands is the assurance of the church of their own salvation. We should always desire the church to be confident and assured in its personal salvation in Christ. Don't you agree? How many of us over the years have doubted whether we were saved? 
How many of us have made mistakes in our lives, this guy included probably many more times than you? Or even as a pastor's kid growing up in Christian education, Christian college and seminary, multiple times doubted whether I was in Christ. Clear into the ministry of preaching the gospel, you say, you're weak. Yes, I am. <laughs> when you fail and you're not obeying, you doubt. You do. I do. What is the strength of God in Christ to pursue holiness? It's prayer. It lends itself to personal examination. Then together with God and Christ and the body, walking together towards Christ's likeness. We should always desire for one another to be assured of our salvation. This is the passing of the test. The protected gospel lived is the assurance and passing of the test for the Christian as we pursue maturity and completeness. And Paul says in verse 10, this is the authority the Lord gave me to build you up and to not tear you down. Unbelieving tyranny strips the soul of any desire, emotion, or ability to pursue Christ's likeness. Because unbelief cookie cuts what it says belief is and then raises the bar way too high to ever be achieved for any one human. Paul says, no. You're no longer an enemy of God because you are in Christ. You are forever adopted. You are ever a child of God by the authority of God. Now, working out this humanity thing takes a long time. And this energy is prayer to both personally discipline ourselves and then collectively know the assurance of our salvation. The ultimate continuation of the church as we close. And I know I'm two minutes over. I thought it would be worthwhile spending a little bit more time up front as a family. And I'm sorry for the ringing. I need to stand still. The ultimate continuation of the church. I read recently this quote, the church isn't perfect, but Jesus is. And since Jesus is for the local church, so am I. <laughs> All right? So if you want to know what imperfect is, look around. Look up here. You want to know what perfect is? That's Jesus, and we're going to spend our whole life pursuing him. And because if Jesus is for the church, so am I. I. I know that you're for the church. I know that's why you're here. There's a list of a number of imperatives here that are able to be um, done by us, obeyed by us, because of the flow of the text, which we won't go back and review. Here they are. Rejoice, be made complete. Right? Be comforted, be like-minded, live in peace, greet one another with a holy kiss. What does that mean? Are you ready? Go study it on your own. I'm going to rifle through these. Rejoice. In the first century culture, this was a greeting. 
This was a greeting. They would say, be happy and long may you live. So when the body gets together, even though she's struggling, the struggle's apparent in the text. Paul's working towards and with, towards Christ-likeness with them in the struggle. When we get together, we can greet each other with rejoice because of the reality of who Christ is and the patience of the Spirit of God as he forms us into Christ-likeness. Each of us, no one better than the other. So let's rejoice in the glorious agony of pursuing Christ together. Be made complete. We've already seen that word in verse 9. Rejoice as a body with what God is doing in you ever so gradually, but certainly in your pursuit of Christ-likeness. Even in your worst spiritual week, there's something that God did to grow you. The whole world embraces that. Professionally, athletically, academically. You are at the bottom of the barrel. You're looking up at the bottom of the barrel and you say, how in the world can I keep going? I failed. And even the world will tell you that's the most, that's the best time in the world to learn, right? That's just common sense. It's the same with the believer spiritually. There's always a time since you are a child of God where God is attending to your growth even when you don't feel like it. His grace is pressing you into the mold of Christ-likeness. So let's rejoice in that with each other. Every saint in this room has felt like giving up sometime in the last six days. I guarantee it. Maybe the last six hours. I'll assure it. All of us have. For any of us to walk in among the body and to look down at someone that says they're ready to give up, shame on them. <laughs> Rejoice with what God has done in them in their very difficult time. Find it. Spend time with them. Pray with them. Investigate it. Turn stones upside down in their life. Figure out how God's working because he's in there in the spirit of God. He's doing something. He's doing something. The Spirit of God never slumbers or sleeps and who He is and what He does just like the Father doesn't. Be like-minded. Be comforted. What does that mean? It goes right along with finding out how God's completing us. Call someone alongside to do this. If you want to know a value of disciple-making, it's right here, and it's imperative for every individual in the flock of Corinth, so good for us. Call someone alongside and figure out how God's maturing them. And rejoice in that. Be comforted in that. Be like-minded. You know what this word means? They would have heard this in the first century of just be convictional. Take a stand. There's no other reason in the world that I am who I am today but by the grace of God. And this, this obedience that I have in my weakness is the strength of God. And that's where I'm going to live. That's where I'm going to stand. Doggone it. 
That's what it means. Be convictional. It's okay for weakness to be convictional when we know we're living by the strength of a divine other. As we exude divine patience with one another in our walk in our humanity. And then we can know what it means to live in peace. The word peace here, the negative in this context in the first century was just an environment that doesn't have fighting, of an environment that doesn't have quarreling. That's all it means. People that are growing together like this, they don't fight, they don't quarrel. Remember verses 1 and 2? <laughs> they love that relationship restoration. And then he says, the God of all peace will comfort you. That's where God the Spirit loves to settle and just blanket struggling souls in his own ability to buffer and pillow them from all that is their own fallenness and the brokenness of unbelief within and without the church. And then he says, hey, you're not left just to your own church. He says, I bring you greetings from all the believers these were all the churches that were probably involved with raising the funds that we'd studied in 2 Corinthians 8 and 9 for the church in Jerusalem, which included southern Corinth and Achaia. Included northern Macedonia churches. Is there strength to be found by other struggling churches in our world as they pursue Christ-likeness and apparently even the greeting of the saints to Corinth, the answer is yes. This is the continuation. This is the perpetuation of the church. He says in verse 14, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Spirit be with you all. And if you really understood, I think you could write down there honestly, we could talk about it over coffee later if you want. Matthew 28, 19, and 20. Jesus says, as we go out and we do his bidding, right? That he will be with us into the end of the age. His authority came from God, is in that context in Matthew. His life influenced by the power of the Spirit of God is assumed in that Matthew 28 text. But here in verse 14, as he finishes this letter, he throws the full weight of divine omnipotence with the mention of each person of the Godhead behind the continuation of the church. All by the grace of Christ. All by the benefiting love of God. And by the sweet communion we have with an indwelling spirit. It will be with us all. D. Martin Lloyd-Jones says this, the eminent concern of the New Testament epistles is not about the size of the church, it's about the purity of the church. And it's true. If the purity of the church is to be maintained and perpetuated, it must know that spiritual genuine authority still does exist if it comes messaging what's in this text. Then to God be the glory, great things he's done.
and no glory to man. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we love you. We thank you for these simple truths that highlight for us the spirit of God's heartbeat for genuine spiritual authority in the church. Pray, Lord, that we will always be about the protecting and restoration of relationships, the protection of the gospel by the way we live, the pursuit of sanctification together, and then the longevity of the church, the continuation of the church that takes the good news of Jesus Christ to those we walk in the natural rhythms of life with who so desperately need to know him and his forgiveness, who so desperately need to be made friends with God again as sin has separated us from God. We thank you for the study in this book. I pray that its truths will be reverberating in our minds and our hearts. Time to come. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.